Section 21 of The Bible Under Trial. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Bible Under Trial by James Orr. Section 21 Discrepancies and Difficulties. Many find a chief ground of objection to the Bible in the discrepancies and mistakes in which its pages are alleged to abound. To read some writers, one would imagine that discrepancy and error were the chief features of the sacred book. There is a positive delight shown often in hunting up, multiplying, and mercilessly exposing these supposed mistakes of the Bible. Delish speaks of the Widerspruchjägerei, the hunting for contradictions, characteristic of the modern critical school. Some of the alleged discrepancies are as old as the hills. Celsus, for example, serves up those on the resurrection. Others are genuine discoveries of the modern spirit. Popular infidelity willingly appropriates the material thus provided for it in the works of Christian and rationalistic writers and thinks that thereby the Bible is effectually discredited. This raises at once the question which troubles so many minds as to whether inspiration is bound up with what is called inerrancy of the sacred record, that is, positive and absolute accuracy in even the minutest and seemingly most unessential details of historical, geographical, and chronological statements. If, it is argued, the Bible is an inspired book, must it not be free from error, even in the minutest degree, in outward as well as inward things? And is not this involved in a right conception of its infallibility as a rule of faith and practice? On this point, it should be frankly recognized that opinions differ, and to some extent are likely always to differ among those who are the most devoted believers in and defenders of the Bible as, through and through, the inspired Word of God. It is not a question, really, which arises in our present discussion. For the issues between the defenders and the assailants of the Bible at the present moment are not of the minute character here described, but affect the claim of the Bible to be a voracious record of the history of God's revelations and the inspired vehicle of his message of salvation to mankind in any proper sense at all. I approach the subject from a somewhat different standpoint. Without attempting to adjudicate between rival theories of inspiration, or using watchwords like inerrancy, verbal inspiration, infallibility, which might breed debate and prejudice my treatment, I propose to offer some considerations which may tend to restore confidence in the Bible as a reliable book, and, by removing misconceptions, may incidentally throw useful light on the doctrine of inspiration itself. I take this line because I am persuaded that many of the disputes on inspiration arise from misunderstandings between the parties which a more careful study of the facts of the Bible itself would do much to clear away. On the main point, I would only record my own conviction 
that the working of the objection from discrepancies has been vastly overdone. What continually impresses me in a candid survey of the field of Scripture is not the amount of error in the Bible, but how surprisingly free the sacred text is, judged with fairness, from anything that can be described as demonstrable contradiction or historical mistake. This of itself, if it can be established, may be felt to furnish a sufficiently striking proof of inspiration. Part 1 I may first clear the ground by ruling out of consideration a number of cases covered by principles already laid down, and in part illustrated in previous papers, or by principles which are in themselves obvious. Thus it is freely acknowledged, and is beyond dispute, that the books of the Bible, especially those of the Old Testament, have a long literary history, and though preserved by a wonderful providence of God from destruction or fatal corruption, have yet, to no small extent, undergone the vicissitudes to which all works frequently transcribed and handed down in more or less imperfect copies are, are liable. Errors in this way creep into the text, especially into names and numbers, and changes of a more serious kind occasionally occur, as from interpolation, explanatory annotation, editorial revision for a special purpose, for example, temple use of psalms, etc. Such causes give rise to difficulties, which it is the business of a cautious criticism to endeavor to remove, or at least to lessen. In the New Testament, the aids to textual criticism are abundant. In the Old Testament, they are much less so. Existing manuscripts but represent one exemplar, and we are thrown back on internal comparison of the books. Or comparison with still more defective versions, or on conjecture. No theory of inspiration is here involved, and one can readily see by comparison of the books of Samuel and Kings with Chronicles, how many seeming discrepancies in names, numbers, lists, etc. have this as their explanation. Thus, in 2 Samuel 8.4, we read 700 horsemen, where the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 18.4 has 7,000. In 2 Samuel 10.18, again, we have 700, where 1 Chronicles 19.18 has 7,000. In 2 Samuel 23.8, we have 800 slain, where 1 Chronicles 11.11 has 300. Here also the words in 2 Samuel authorized version, that sat in the seat, are probably a corruption for the Joshobim of 1 Chronicles. See Revised Version. 1 Kings 4.26 has 40,000 stalls, where 2 Chronicles 9.25 has the more likely number 4,000. The 50,070 men slain at Beth Shemesh, 1 Samuel 6.19, is almost certainly a corruption of the same order. Josephus has 70. And there are numerous other examples. As instances of changes in text, accidental or designed, 
Psalm 18 may be compared in its two versions, in the Psalter, and in 2 Samuel 23. Or Psalm 14, Jehovistic, may be compared with Psalm 53, Elohistic. Another class of cases of discrepancies which may be briefly dismissed are those which arise not from the text as we actually have it, but from the arbitrary assertion and hypotheses of criticism. The number of these discrepancies is legion, but they are mostly self-created. Thus, we have contradictory narratives of the creation in Genesis 1 and 2. But this depends on the critic's way of looking at the history. The two narratives are in no way parallel. The first gives an orderly account of the creation of heaven and earth. The second is not, in strictness, an account of the creation at all. It says nothing of the creation of heaven or earth, or of the general plant creation, but has for its object to show how man was dealt with by God at his creation, how he was placed in suitable surroundings, how a helpmeet was provided for him, etc. And the whole material is grouped from this point of view. In the book of Genesis itself, the narratives are connected in the closest way, Genesis 2-4, without the least sense of contradiction. A favorite method is to divide out a narrative among its several assumed authors, J, E, P, etc., then, treating each part as complete, to pit one against another and mark off the differences between them. As in reality, the parts of the narrative are closely interrelated, and all are needed to give the complete story. The semblance of contradiction is easily produced. Thus, the P writer is supposed to know nothing of a fall. Yet, as Wellhausen admits, he was acquainted with the J narrative of Genesis 3 and presupposes it. There is alleged to be contradiction between J and P as to the duration of the flood. Yet, when the narrative is taken as a whole, harmony, not discrepancy, is revealed. The story of Joseph is split up between two writers, J and E, who are affirmed to give discrepant accounts of the sale of Joseph and his fortunes in Egypt. But the ground for this discrepancy disappears if the narrative is accepted in its integrity. Wonderful things are made of the story of Moses and Aaron in Exodus, of the story of the mission of the spies, of the account of the rebellion of Korah. But the narratives have first to be torn to pieces before the discrepancies can be made out. Another part of the same method is to regard all resembling narratives, especially if found in distinct sources, as duplicates, and to evolve as before contradictions between them. Thus, Hagar's flight, Genesis 16, is identified with her expulsion by Sarah, chapter 21. Abraham's denial of his wife at Egypt, Genesis 12, is identified with his repetition of the offense at Gerar, chapter 20. Jacob's vision at Bethel before going to Padan Aram, Genesis 28.10 and pages, is identified with God's appearance to him on his return, Genesis 35 and pages.
The call of Moses at the bush in Midian, Exodus 3, 1 pages, is made the same as the revelation to him in Egypt, chapter 6, 2 and pages, etc. Yet there are plain indications in the narratives themselves that the incidents mentioned are distinct, and generally the latter is seen to imply the earlier. But the contradictions of time, place, and circumstance fall if the incidents are not the same. I do not need to repeat what was said in a previous paper of the supposed scientific mistakes of the Bible. Defenders and impugners of the inspiration of the record alike need to bear in mind the fact that it is not the object of the Bible to give scientific descriptions of events in a form anticipative of 19th or 20th century discoveries. Its language is popular in character in accordance with the standpoint of the observer and the state of knowledge of his time. Still, as was before observed, with a wonderful freedom from positive error. Talk, therefore, such as one sometimes hears about the mistakes of Moses, is wholly irrelevant. Such language might properly be used if it were the Babylonian myth of creation, Tiamat being cut in two by Merodach and heaven made from one half of her earth from the other that was being dealt with. But the Genesis narrative, in its monotheistic grandeur, and the true and sublime ideas that inspire it, it is above all such criticism. Similarly, in the story of the flood, the language employed is that of broad, popular description, as the catastrophe might appear to one who actually observed it. Beyond declaring the destruction of the race of mankind, there is no attempt, as there is no call, to describe scientifically the range or effects of the deluge. Part 2 I have next to remark that very many alleged discrepancies and errors not falling within the above classes are, when properly examined, found to be, in reality, no discrepancies or mistakes at all. This is frequently obvious from simple inspection. It is sometimes made clear by the progress of discovery. If no book has been so often assailed as the Bible, none has so often been vindicated from charges brought against it. Such, for example, are the biblical statements formerly referred to on the non-Semitic character of the early Babylonians, on the priority of Babylonian to Assyrian civilization, on the Semitic origin of Elam, on the power of the Hittites, on Sargon II and his siege of Ashdod, on the existence of Belshazzar, on the governorship of Kyrenius, etc., all now corroborated by research and scholarship. Sargon claims in his inscription to be the conqueror of Samaria, but the impression given by the Bible narrative, 2 Kings 17, 3-6, though that interpretation is by no means necessary, is that the conqueror was Shalmaneser. Now it appears that after all, Shalmaneser was probably the conqueror of Samaria. I take an example of discrepancy cited in a recent able work in proof that our Lord's authority is not to be extended to his statements about the Old Testament. 
Let us test this, the writer says, by a simple case. He speaks of the drought in the days of Elijah as lasting three years and six months. The same statement is made in the epistle of James, Luke 4.25, James 6.17. But in the first book of Kings, we are told that the rain came in the third year, 1 Kings 18.1, which would make the drought about two years and a half, possibly less. How are we to explain the discrepancy? Even if, as the author supposes, Jesus was simply following here a current Jewish reckoning, it would not trouble me, for such cases undoubtedly occur, see below. But, as a test case, the example is unfortunate, for there is no need for assuming any discrepancy. It is forgotten that in Palestine, rain is not an everyday occurrence as it is with us. The ground had already been dry for six months, since the previous rainy season, when Elijah stayed the rain by his word at the commencement of the new rainy season. If the cessation lasted till the third year thereafter, the total period of drought would necessarily be about three years and six months. It was strictly true, therefore, that, as Jesus said, in the days of Elijah, the heaven was shut up for three years and six months. Luke 6.25 Another instance, typical of many, may be taken from the Old Testament. The critics urge that Deuteronomy 10.3, according to which Moses himself made the ark before his second ascent of the mount, is in palpable contradiction to the narrative in Exodus 27.1 and pages, 37.1 and pages, where we are told that Moses received elaborate instructions for the making of the ark during his first sojourn on the mount and that these were carried out by Bezalel after his second descent. There is, however, no real discrepancy between Exodus and Deuteronomy on the matter. Moses, in Deuteronomy, at the distance of 40 years, and in the freedom of auditory speech, mentions the making of the ark as a receptacle for the tables without regard to chronology, and it is pedantic to understand him otherwise. Can anyone suppose, in view of the narrative in Exodus 34, 1-4, which Deuteronomy admittedly follows, that the writer actually intended to convey that Moses, literally and with his own hands, constructed an ark of acacia wood in the interval between his receiving the command to hew the tables, verse 1, itself no slight work, and his rising up early the next morning to ascend the mount, verses 3-4, my imagination is not equal to the effort. A real difficulty lies in the large numbers frequently met with in the books of the Old Testament, in Judges, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. Some of these may be accounted for, as already seen, by corruption of the numbers, some by the use of round numbers, see below, and of large totals intended to convey a general idea where precise enumeration was not possible. For example, the accounts of David's census of Israel and Judah in 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21 are evidently taken from the same original, yet the numbers in Samuel, verse 9, are 800,000 warriors for Israel and 500,000 for Judah, 
In Chronicles, verse 5, 1,100,000 for Israel and 470,000 for Judah. One is tempted here to suppose corruption, as in so many places elsewhere, or there may be a design change from some motive not known to us. Still, the enormous totals compare 1 Kings 12, 2 Chronicles 11, 1, 2 Chronicles 13, 3, and 17, 14, 8, 9, 17, 14 in pages, 26, 13, etc., are not readily explained. And the expedients sometimes suggested for reducing the numbers have not much probability. Perhaps the best defense of the numbers is that they are uniformly so large. Every account and enumeration we have implies a population of unusual density and very large muster rolls of the males fit for war. It is remarkable that Dr. Flinders Petrie, in his researches in Sinai, while advocating a method of reducing the numbers of the Israelites at the Exodus, which I think untenable, yet defends in the main the large numbers of the later books, especially of Judges, pages 219 through 20. He upholds the figures in the wars of Barak and Gideon, Judges 4, 8, and says, The last great fight before the monarchy, the civil with Benjamin, demands a roll call of 426,000 of all Israel. One in ten of Israel are said to have been levied, or 40,000 to fight 26,000 of Benjamin. The extermination of a defeated tribe under these conditions is not surprising. The only figures we need set aside are those of the 22,000 and 18,000 Israelites who were slain. Yet why in so fierce a war of extermination? But the totals of men involved and the catastrophe which befell the tribe are not surprising. Page 220. End of section 21. Read by Danny Hamilton. Progresso, Yucatan. August 9th, 2022.